us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lund Loop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of, what is it, um, I always forget, markets, money, because it used to be markets trading in life, now it's markets money and life. You'll have to forgive me if the sound is a little odd, I am actually recording this on my iPhone in the drive through line at In-N-Out. Long story, don't ask why, I'm just recording the intro to this week's podcast with my iPhone, it will switch to the normal setup in a little bit. This week, I found myself in San Diego on a Thursday in the middle of the day, which is very odd because usually I'm at my trading desk. I was down there for some Lunloop related stuff, which we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast. But San Diego is my favorite place, one of my favorite places in the world to go to because when I go to San Diego, I have a process. Yes, I have a process for going to San Diego. I've gone there for years and years and years. My process used to be way different when I was younger because I had different priorities. Now my process is this. Whenever I'm down in San Diego and I'm done with what I'm supposed to be there for, I have a route that I go on. I've already mapped it out. It's all the used bookstores in San Diego. I'm a big book nerd. I love books, first editions, used, whatever. And for some reason, San Diego has a really plentiful book scene. We don't have it up here in Orange County. There's no real good used book places up here. So whenever I go to San Diego, I finish with what I'm doing and I do three things. I first go to a one of two different taco joints that I love down there. So that's the first part of my process. Next thing I do is I hit my little book route and I pick up some books. And then the third thing is I go to one of two or three different craft brew places that I love because San Diego is known for craft brew. So this Thursday, I went down, did what I had to do, went, had the tacos. They were fantastic. Hit these bookstores, followed my process. I went to a craft place, sat outside in the refulgent sun. It was a beautiful late winter day in California. And everything about Thursday was absolutely fantastic. And then I made a mistake. And I woke up on Friday morning saying, God, that was a horrible day yesterday. What went wrong? Well, look, when we're doing our trading, when we're doing our investing, we want to have a process. But what happens when we get ahead on our process? When everything is going really good, when we are up early in the day, or what if we're like up early in the year? For example, NVIDIA is up like 80% year to date right now. So we get up early and then we say, ah, you know what? I'm up so much. I can take a flyer. I can deviate from my process. And then what happens? We give back some, maybe a lot. Maybe we give back all of it because we got too cocky. We got too ahead of ourselves, but we left our process. So as I was coming back from San Diego, I saw the Ocean's Eleven Poker Casino. Now, I am a notably bad poker player. I like the, the concept of poker. I like to play poker with my friends, but 
I'm not good at the poker table because in addition to ADHD, you have a beer and you get distracted. And I, I play good for about an hour and then I tend to fall apart. So I've stopped playing poker years ago. I don't go anymore. I was driving right by Ocean. I said, you know what? Why don't I just stop? And there's been such a great day. Everything's been so awesome today. Got some great books. Got some great tacos. Got some great craft beer. Let's just top it off by going into Ocean's Eleven. Deviating from my process, my San Diego process, and I got my head handed to me. And it just made the rest of the day feel like, ugh. And I was so upset with myself Friday morning. But look, these are the mistakes that we sometimes make, and we just have to remind ourselves. Like, I'll remind myself now not to go to a casino for probably another year or so. Anyway, let's get back to the reason I was in San Diego. So I was down there because my friend Patrick, who runs the chart report, he asked me if I wanted to come down and film a segment for his video channel. So Chart Report has a YouTube channel. They got a nice studio set up down there. So we went down, did a little 40-minute uh, Q&A interview type thing. We talked about the state of the market, talked about my philosophy as a trader, et cetera, et cetera. If you get the chance, watch it in video format. It's live right now on their YouTube channel because we have lots of charts and lots of context. But if you're not someone who has the opportunity to sit down and watch the whole thing, I thought I would put the audio version here on the podcast. At least you can listen to it that way. Uh, I would also encourage you to sign up for Patrick's uh, daily update at the end of each day. It's uh, it's like the Lundloop daily update, except it's in much more depth. He, he calls... Uh, interesting tweets from the FinTwit community. goes a lot more in depth on numbers and asset classes and things. It's free, so just go. I, I don't know if it's thechartreport.com, but you can just Google the chart report. So anyway, anyway, without any further ado, I'm now out of the in and out drive through line. Here is my interview with Patrick. All right, Brian. Wow. Welcome to the yeah. show, and thanks for coming into the studio today. Thanks for having me. I hear that I'm your second uh, in-person guest yep. ever. Yep, yep. Some so, other loser named Lindzen. Yeah, this Howard to, guy. So yeah, whatever. Uh, we we let him on the show. You sure. know, we let yeah. the charity. In. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we set things up a little differently. Um, you know, we don't usually have people in here, as you said, um, but we're definitely getting our money's worth out of the studio today, and. Um, yeah, I don't know too many West Coast traders, so right. we're rare. We we're got we got to stick together, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I gotta ask you on that note, what do you what do you think of trading West Coast hours? Like, well, if you ask me now, I'm okay with it because yeah. I've, been, I've been doing it for so long. Uh, I have kids, and once you have kids, you learn to get up early. And so I, yeah. I'm kind of an uh, early morning person these days. But when I started out back in the '80s and '90s, and when I was my 20s and 30s, it was brutal. Yeah. Because you know you go out and have fun, you know, on a Wednesday night, and then you got to get up 6 at 6 a.m. Yeah, or, or earlier than that, right? Yeah. I think I maybe missed four or five opens in my whole career. Um, yeah. Ironically, one of them was 9-11, which was wow. crazy. I, I, wow. I woke up like an hour late and uh, turned on the TV, and it took me like 15 minutes to actually process what was happening. Right. But most of the time, it's it hasn't been a problem, and uh, certainly yeah. not in the last few years. And it's nice being done early. You know, you can... Get all your errands done after. It's so good. It, in fact, I was at a Traders Expo a couple of years ago, and I ran into a trader who is in Hawaii. Okay. And they're done at 10 a.m. Whoa. Now I have to get up at three. I was right? gonna say they they must have right. to start. They have like, like the, the the best of both worlds, I guess. Or yeah. One world. <laughs> yeah. I did the math one time, and I think I'm supposed to be in Saskatchewan. I think that's the exact right place for me in terms of when I would have to get up and when the day is done. Like, yeah. 
probably not moving to Saskatchewan. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of mixed on it. I, I do like being done early, uh, but, you know, not so much of a morning person, so sometimes it's tough. But. And it's lonely out here because there's not that many traders. I mean, you, right, you right. find them more now that there's uh, social media and everything. But yeah. other And other than maybe IBD, which is up in L.A., oh, really? there's not a big presence of uh, the industry out here. Yeah. So. You, you and I have known each other for years, yeah. but for our viewers who don't, how did you get involved in the market? Who doesn't know me, Patrick? Come on. <laughs> yeah, so way back in the day, they used to have these things called newspapers. Oh, they had these really? physical things made of paper, and they would deliver them at your door every morning. And they had sections, and there was a business section. As a kid, I was fascinated by the business section. I, I didn't know what it was about. And, and for those of you that are younger, they would actually print yesterday's, you know, the, the, the tickers. The, yeah, yeah, or the, yeah, or the, the, the final. Yeah. yeah, the quotes. So I'd go through there, and I thought, you know, there, this is a puzzle. And if I can figure this puzzle out, there's, there's money to be made there. But back then there was no online trading. There was no, uh, you just didn't have a lot of resources unless you were in the industry. Yeah. So I would follow the stock market, follow the stock market. Finally, when I turned 18, I decided I was going to open up a brokerage account. Uh, again, no online trading. So I went to Sears because back then Sears had this idea where they were going to have a financial suite in their store. So they had like all state insurance. What, what year was this? Like oh, This is 85, right? Okay. So one month after I turned, uh, this is October of 85. Before one... electronic trading. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you had to actually be 18 to open an account. Not like now where you can be like 13 and open a Robinhood account. Yeah. So I went to Sears and back in the back next to the Kenmore washers and the Craftsman, Craftsman tools were, was a Dean Witter office. And so I walked up to the broker on who was assigned that that office that day. His name was Randall Woodworth. I swear to God. Wow, what a name. Yeah, goes what, by, what a perfect name. Goes by Randy <laughs> these days. And I said I want to buy $300 worth of Altos computers. Okay. Wasn't really sure what they did. Figured it had to do with computers because that was in their name. But I'd seen them on a local cable access channel. And I thought, well, I'll try that. And so he says, call me back in six hours and I'll tell you what price you got filled at. So that was my first entree into the world of trading yeah. and then in terms of technical analysis about seven eight years later I was on one of the early uh, bulletin board services called Prodigy it was like an okay. AOL and they had um, different sections you know like arts entertainment whatever and they had this one called money talk okay. so I got onto the money talk bulletin board and there was something called TAOTN technical analysis on the net and it was these really savvy technical analysis guys that were, they were super old. They were like 30, this is like 35. A, a, right? Like a message board? Yeah, like a message okay. board, right. And so I started, you know, interacting with them and what's this technical analysis? And it made so much sense right off the bat because it was all based upon price and volume. It was yeah. very objective. Whereas before that, you would try to, you know, get a value line, you know, book and figure out what the PE was of a company. And, yeah. what and you're like, what? How, how yeah. do I know? So that was the first uh, time I ever got involved in technical analysis. And what's kind of interesting is even back then, we started having these meetups around the country. So we, we flew to Biloxi, Mississippi, one year yeah. where we went to uh, Colorado, another. So um, I was fortunate enough to find some really good, I guess, mentors and people that got me into technical analysis really early before it was as uh, commonplace as it is now. Yeah, I think the internet's done a lot to, and you know, the fact that we have charting available, you know, yeah. like you said, you used to have to go through the books and stuff or keep charts by hand. Yeah, but crazy, right? Now we can rip through a bunch of tickers just like that, you yeah. know? So, you know, you say your process is 80% technicals, 20% instinct. Mm. So what do, what do you kind of mean by that? So I, I rely on technicals for the majority of my decision making, but there are times there's edge cases, like for example, we've had a lot of volatility in the last couple of weeks. 
So you might see a stock, let's say that it's very oversold, and it might not have gotten to a point technically where it's a buy, but you just based upon the number of years you've done it, uh, think, well, this thing's ready for a reflex rally. So in that case, I or might- even sentiment, like, you know, yeah. you're, you're on Twitter a lot when you see tons of bearish sentiment, you know, that's kind of part of that gut instinct that you're talking right. about. Or you have like your loser brother-in-law who never <laughs> wins and he calls and says, sell everything. And you go, I should probably think about buying. Right. So that's the gut part. And when I say gut, it doesn't mean you just go in and buy a position and that's it, right? What I mean is you, you, you kind of ease in a little bit, right? You take some probing positions so that if you're wrong, you don't get hurt really bad. But if you're right and the technicals do catch up, you have somewhat of a head start. So that's why I say it's about 20% uh, gut. Yeah, and, and you know, I like that you don't shy away from that because, you know, technicians and technical analysis is supposed to be objective, right? Yeah. That's supposed to be kind of, you know, it, it can be subjective, but... But we're human beings, right? Right, we, right. If someone says that they're non-emotional about trading, they're lying. Uh, the goal of technical analysis for me is to process those emotions, right? The fear, the greed, whatever is, is coming to you but then have the half-life of it be so much shorter, right. right? Because you can rely on your technicals. Whereas before you'd say, I gotta get in on this and maybe for you know hours and days you'd be acting that way. Now it's like, okay, I acknowledge the emotion, but I can go to my technicals, I can kind of short circuit that a little bit and get it off my plate and then you know, go yeah, back to and, it. Yeah, and it's really more of a risk management tool than a prediction yeah. tool. And I think a lot 100%. of people think that it's this prediction tool it's really just, I mean, not just, it's a risk management tool and that's really the value. At the end of the day, I always want to try and focus on risk. And yeah. risk is only quantifiable really by technicals. You can't quantify it so much with your gut. But it is nice to have that little gear that you can switch into as long as you're, you're watching the downside and not getting too carried away. You know, you run a service called the Lun Loop. I think you started in 2017, 2018. Mm -hmm. So tell our viewers a little bit more about the Lun Loop. Yeah, so the Lun Loop is really an outgrowth of a blog that I started back in 2007. I was trading full time. I found uh, th there's a lot of time when you shouldn't be doing anything. Right. So I, what am I going to do with my time? I started blogging. <laughs> Long story short, you know, people started reading it, watching it, looking at it, whatever. And so in 2017, I took it to Substack. Mm -hmm. 2018, I flipped it to a paid service. And what it really is, is it's the work that I'm doing already for myself, right? It's, go it's going through hundreds of charts, looking at the setups, um, figuring out which ones I think are going to trigger, which ones I think are maybe a pass, and then managing them as they trigger into an, an active sequence. And so I took all that information, put it into basically a, a product, I guess you'd call it, which is the Lun Loop. Yeah. Um, it's, it's fairly lightweight, but it's very focused, right? It's not, I'm not gonna talk about intermarket uh, connectivity, right? That's something, that's what you guys do, right? Yeah. I'm just gonna tell you, hey, here's a, a list of stocks that look like they've got a good chance of triggering and making you some money. In addition to that, we've got a, a pretty robust Discord community, which is great because um, it's a, since it's kind of a segmented community off of FinTwit, you don't get all that toxic you know, stuff that, that we all battle with on FinTwit. Uh, and it's just a, it's a great community for people to learn, um, share, and, and get better. And that's all we really want to do is just get better. So. All right, well, let's talk markets because it's been a crazy couple weeks. Yep. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, so the week isn't quite over. There's plenty of time left to, right. uh, you know, for, for stuff to go awry. Big day in process. Yeah, right, right, right. I Big rebound today. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, we never know how it closes, but it's been a choppy week for sure. Mm. But we are up more than 2% on the week, which 
you know, if you followed the headlines or if you were on FinTwit this weekend, you would never believe that. Right. Um, and, you know, actually my sister, God bless her, she texted me yesterday and, and said, uh, you know, are you holding up okay through all this bank crisis stuff? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm fine. The market's actually right. up slightly on the week. Um, but I think it just kind of underscored the fact that, you know, amid all this stuff, you really haven't seen, um, you know, too much fallout yet, you know. And I was thinking about it and I was trying to think, you know, who was really hurt by this? Because it seems like, you know, other than the bank CEOs who, right. who you know, nobody feels bad for the bank right, CEOs. Right. But who was really impacted by this? You know, it seemed like everyone freaked out this weekend. And then the government came in yeah. and uh, seemed to, you know, at least throw a Band-Aid on it. But, you know, the saga is still kind of unfolding. You know, what sort of ripple effects or consequences do you think might come of this or, or none at all? So, so many things to unpack here. Yeah. I, I grew up in Southern California, right up the coast. And one of the things that you get as table stakes when you grow up in Southern California is earthquakes. Right? Earthquakes come out of nowhere. I haven't had one here yet. You haven't had one, really? Had How long have you been here? One. About two years. Okay, yeah. you're due. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they, they come out of nowhere. And then after the earthquake's done, you have aftershocks. You don't know how many you're going to have or how strong they're going to be. What we saw with the banking sector a week and a half ago with SIVB, that was the earthquake. Came out of nowhere. Nobody came into that week with Silicon Valley Bank going BK on their bingo cards. In mm. fact, everyone was looking at, uh, Jerome Powell was speaking that week. That's what they were looking at. So that's the big earthquake. Right now, we don't know what the aftershocks are because what's going to happen is you're going to see regulators, you're going to see politicians, you're going to see people in the government make changes, and those things don't happen overnight. Uh, so we're going to have to see. It's like when you work, I used to work in the broker-dealer side, and you have to deal with uh, FINRA, which is the regulatory body. Now, FINRA really never tells you what you can or you can't do. They keep kind of a gray area. And when times are really good, when everyone's making money and stocks are at all-time high, that gray area expands a lot. Mm -hmm. But when you have like a Bernie, Bernie Madoff situation, all of a sudden that contracts. And that's exactly where we're at right now. We don't know how, what the contraction will be in terms of regulations, how that will impact the financial industry. So it's, it's kind of a wait and see. Um, but what I would say is people have to... They have to understand the time frames here because I see a lot of, especially traders, that are looking for short-term price action to signal that a long-term macro problem is solved. Right. And that's just not how it works. So right. it, we still need to see how this thing plays out probably over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, and I like that analogy to the earthquakes and the aftershocks. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it's still unfolding and we'll see. But you look at a chart of the financial sector and, you know, that 30 level is really key. I mean, you know, it was it was the top in 07 yep. and then again in 2018 and then 2020. And here we are, you know, testing it for the third time in the past year. Yep. So we'll see if it if it holds. Uh, but I mean, if it doesn't, to me, that that is basically all of post 2020 was could be just a big fail breakout for financials. And yeah, that's and, scary. And that's so. a much better looking chart than KRE. Because if you oh, look gosh. at the, uh, the regional bank, that, that's, oh, I mean, that's yeah. ugly. Yeah. So there's going to have to be a lot of repair work done on that chart before we can settle in and feel confident. And people always ask, ask me, well, how will I know that you know, we've seen the bottom? And it, it's a stupid cliche answer, but it's a real answer. 
first of all, we capture the eight-day moving average, then the 21-day moving average, then the fifth, you know, we incrementally see strength. We capture, you know, support and resistance levels. Yeah. We have minor pullbacks. You know, we maybe rally a little bit, we pull back 25, 33%, then we rally again. So it will be an incremental process that will take place over time. Now, are you talking about the, at the index level? Yeah. Well, well let's move on to the okay, indexes yeah. then, um, you know, because we have been kind of just chopping around the 200-day moving average for a long time, and you mentioned a process, and it, it seems like the last, call it, nine months have been kind of a bottoming process, dare I say, uh, because, you know, we, there are some positive things going on, but, man, has it been tough to be a bull. <laughs> like, it has been tough to be a bull, but I think if you look at the big picture, how much bad news has been thrown at this market in the last since since October, let's right. put it that way, and still we're doing pretty we're pretty far off of that low that we we saw. So, if you throw everything in the kitchen sink at the market and you can't even take it down near that area, it tells me that the market's maybe more resilient than we think it is. And we always have to remember that the market is a forward discounting mechanism. It's always looking 12, 18, 24 months in advance. So what the market is doing right now is based upon what the smart money thinks. You know, the economy will be a year, a year and a half, two years down the line. And we don't know that, obviously, but we just do know that they've tried to knock it down so much and they haven't been able to. And I think that's a good sign. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, within the context of everything that's been thrown at it, the fact that it is, you know, kind of holding up and it's right around the 200 day, that's, yeah. you know, that's information right there. Right? 100%. Yeah. I know terms like bull market, bear market might not matter a lot to a trader like yourself. Uh, but I got to ask you, you know, gun to your head, uh, do you think what we saw in October was the lows then? Gun to my head, huh? Well, <laughs> I put out, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So my daughter wanted to go to uh, Knott's Scary Farm. So Knott's, Knott's Berry Farm is an amusement park out here in Southern California. Okay. It's, a, it's the red-haired stepchild of Disneyland. But, okay. So they have this thing, they transform it in October from Knott's Berry Farm to Knott's Scary Farm. So she wanted to go with a friend. It's like a haunted house? Yeah, thing? exactly. Okay, cool. But they have this rule now that if you're under 18, you have to have a parent, and the parent has to be in the park the whole time, right? So I took her and her friends, and of course they don't want to hang out with me. So we went on, I think it was the 28th of October. It was, it was after we had the big uh, drop day. And they went off and did something for six hours. And I sat huh? there in, in the Calico Saloon with my laptop and drank a beer. And I, and I wrote this post that I put on the Lun Loop and it was nine reasons why we may have seen the market bottom this week. So I've been in the camp for a long time that yes, we've seen the bottom. By the way, three of those reasons were Kramer crying on live TV. I don't remember. What did, what did he do? You don't remember him crying? So he cried. He actually he cried, tears? And I can't remember over what, what uh, maybe it was just the low that we put in. Anyway, he cried and it seemed to me like, okay, there's an extreme right there. Yeah, right. And I said, I think we've got the bottom in. There were some other things that I pointed to. Banks were looking strong. Financials were looking strong. There were a few other things. So I think as I look at the charts right now, I still think that was the bottom. I think we've put the, the bottom in, but... That doesn't mean we just go straight back up to the highs. Right. We could be in this sideways market for months. We could be in it for years, theoretically. Right. But it does feel to me like we we probably put in a bottom. But yeah. who knows? <laughs> Again, gun to your head, what are you going to do? <laughs> we didn't see the type of capitulation move that I would like to see. I mean, we saw a big, that big reversal day, which was, uh, let me put my glasses on here, which was on the 13th of October. That was the day that we had this flush and a big green stick. We didn't see a massive 
volume increase, which I like to see, but you could probably argue that we've seen maybe mini capitulations before that. So, but I, I think... Yeah, that was quite a candle. What was that, October 13th 13th, yeah, yes. okay, yeah, yeah. But I, I would say 51%, gun to my head, we've seen the bottom. Yeah. So I want to move on to a topic that I think kind of got overshadowed with all this banking yeah. crisis stuff this week. And I'm talking about the breakdown in energy stocks sure, yeah. and, uh, and crude oil. Um, you know, last year, energy was the only sector that was positive. Um, and we're kind of seeing sector performance kind of the mirror image of what last year yeah. was. You know, you have tech and communications right. actually leading, which is um, notable. And, and energy is the worst performing sector, not financials, it's energy. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on energy or crude oil here. Do you think they'll kind of continue to... Uh, to be weak the rest of the year? Or? So, you know, I'm not a macro guy. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I can talk about macro in this scenario or at a yeah. bar, but I don't really get into macro. Right. That being said, I think the obvious answer to that question people are throwing out there is they think that we're going to have a recession. And because we're going to have a recession, we're going to have a slowdown, and so there won't be as much need for energy. I'm not sure. That's, sometimes the most obvious answer is not the right answer. Sometimes it is the right answer, but sometimes it's not. And so we go back to that discounting thing. Maybe that the move we've seen in the last year and a half, two years in energy has been that forward-looking thing where, yes, we're going to go into a recession, but now that we're, it looks like we may actually be going into it, it's the, a sell-the-news type of thing. Right. From a technical standpoint, what I can tell you is that energy stocks, they make big moves. They don't, they're not really day trading vehicles. They're not even really swing trading vehicles. And you've seen them make this massive move. And a lot of them now are breaking below their 200-day moving average. More importantly than that, because we've seen a couple of them dip below the 200-day moving averages a couple of times in the, in the past few years, is that you're starting to see the short-term moving averages really start to turn down. Whereas before they might have been flat as it was coming in to test the 200-day. Now we're starting to see them cross over. So you're seeing the 8 cross over the 21, the 21 or the 50. And you're seeing that across the whole industry. So I feel like we've probably seen the top in that market. Um, but again, that's, that's just my, that's my non-macro take on it. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you mentioned that energy stocks tend to make big moves, right? Big moves. And it almost seems like they're due for one because you know, at least crude oil was really, really just coiling up the past few months yeah. and into a tight range. And you know, out of range contraction tends to come range expansion, yeah. and we're finally starting to see it resolve lower this week. So it'll be kind of interesting to see if, if that continues to. And play not only up. that, but what we saw before is we saw oil itself being weak, whereas like OIH oil services were still strong. They were they were at recent highs and still pushing that way. And we saw this last week and, and last week a little bit. Um, we've seen OIH actually implode right? And, right and confirm that move with oil so when you see them both moving in the same direction that's even more of a sign that maybe the, the big secular move yeah. is over you're saying like the leaders got shot kind of thing that's something a, like that's that. a red flag yeah yeah. Thing. yeah yeah that's a great point um but you know i want to move on to pot stocks okay um, my favorite subject i know i know so as uh, a non-pot smoker right? which is my favorite <laughs> you know and here we are in california where it's Crazy, all over right? the place right you can't drive down the highway without seeing a billboard never smoked pot right? never had a cup of coffee that, i crazy. can't believe that, that, that the crazy? coffee I thing i mean i know wow. i'm a weirdo I get it. <laughs> no it's all good so yeah I, I always see it talking about pot stocks yeah obviously you're usually poking fun at them yeah um because they've arguably been the worst area of the market. I mean, can you think of a worst, a worse, you know, group of stocks than pot stocks? They've been the worst 
for the longest. I mean, you could maybe make the case that SPACs in a shorter period of time, but like, no, I would agree. Yeah, with and, and it was like, there was so much hope and hype for them when they first came out with these ETFs and stuff. And you started seeing a lot of these come yep. public and it's been almost just a steady grind lower. I mean, we have MJ here, but, um, oh, and, and today, we got a. Yeah, our I, friend I Howard. Saw, yeah. I saw a headline that Yellen said from Janet Yellen, of all people, saying uh, that they were going to look to kind of ease back on some of the restrictions that they have for marijuana companies to bank with, uh, you know, the, with the banks because right now it's yeah. all it's all cash because it's still federal. Well, Yellen illegal. bakes. We know that. We know <laughs> she gets baked, right? But look, uh, I know the our, lingo, right? I've never done it, but I know the lingo <laughs> at least, right? Our buddy Howard uh, joking that you know somebody's got to pay for the banking crisis right. somehow, so right. this is right. their way. Uh, but yeah, a lot of these ETFs just straight down. Um, you know, they had a pop initially, but then just steady bleed. Yeah. Um, so, do you think pot stocks will ever stop uh, going down? <laughs> this is my pet peeve subject. When when this story is written, whenever it's over, it's going to be very instructive for investors. So my here's my framework of, of pot stocks. In 2018, I went to an event here on Coronado where um, there was a speaker that gave this glowing presentation about pot stocks. And I'll, I will admit, I was hooked. I'm like, wow, yeah. this is like going to be the biggest thing ever. And pot can cure psoriasis and fix your relationship with your wife and I mean, it can do everything. It's amazing. It's amazing what pot can do. So I actually bought some pot stocks and we all know the story since. I mean, they performed yeah. for a little while, but they've been in this relentless downtrend for the last two and a half years. And what's been really, at, re least, yeah, at least, that, yeah. and what's been really interesting about it is how these pot permables, as I call them, have just dug in. They have never at any point said, made a mistake. There's nothing wrong with making a mistake. We all make mistakes. I probably made three mistakes trading today. I'll make 10 tomorrow. But that's that's what trading is, right? Yeah. But they have just dug in and said, no, just you wait. That's their philosophy, right? That's, that's their investing and trading philosophy. Just you wait. And we've seen these stocks. Well, I'll give you an example. Of the stocks that was in the deck of this, the person right. who presented, I think probably a half dozen don't even exist anymore. There were stocks like Can Trust, and I can't even remember what the other ones are. And then there's others like Aurora, which went down to like 70 cents, did a reverse one for 15 split so they could get back up, and are now back down at 70 cents. Oh my so, gosh, even after that. So the, the long-winded answer to your question, I think, is this, is no matter what happens with safe banking, no matter what happens with legislation, it may be too late for the vast majority of pure play uh, pot stocks. And what people don't understand is that a business can continue to operate while the stock goes away. So we may see this, this cyclical hell of reverse splits, of shelf offerings, of dilution. We've already seen that. And a lot of these stocks, even after today's announcement, they didn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, if you look at right. MSOS or MJ, those should be up ten percent. I mean, you, I think they're up. They should two, be up more than, but, even more than that. But, yeah. And that's just because a lot of these stocks, are, a lot of these companies, are zombie companies and will never ever recover. Now, some will, but it's just a it's a real informative lesson for for investors and traders. I don't have anything against somebody investing in a narrative, mm -hmm. as long as the technicals support the narrative. And then when the technicals and the narrative when they part. You have to go with the technicals. And if you don't go with the technicals, if you stick with the narrative, you have to at least be honest with yourself and say, okay, I'm not following any sort of risk management here. I am just 
you know, doing a lotto or doing a hopeful thing, which again, that's fine. But um, I think a lot of people confuse the two and they think, you know, I'm going to go into this for this reason. And then those reasons go away and then they rationalize. Well, I mean, look at what we saw during the whole pot implosion. Well, wait till this state legalizes it right. and then wait till this state yep. legalizes it. Wait till this. And they've all, everyone's legal. I mean, who are we waiting for? Kentucky, Guam, <laughs> you know, like the U.S. Virgin Islands. Utah. If, if, yeah, <laughs> right. If New York and Texas, or not Texas, but they're not legal yet. But if New York and California can't buoy that industry, then what are these other territories going to do? Right, right. And, you know, it goes back to what you talked about at the top of the conversation of, of using technicals as a tool of risk mm. management. You know, go ahead and trade that narrative yep. if you want. But once, you know, once your levels get hit, you got to obey, you know, your, your risk risk plan, basically. Or be honest with yourself and say, I'm willing to lose all this. Mm. If, if you are, that's fine. If, if, if you're trading the narrative yourself. 100%. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if this is money that you say, look, I'm not going to do anything with this. This is Sydney or the bush, all or nothing. That's fine. You just have to be honest with yourself. That's where we get in trouble is we, we self-deceive as not just traders and investors, but as human beings, right? So we should always be in a process of call, calling ourselves on our own, I don't know, can I swear, yeah. on our own bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, speaking of degenerate trades, uh, we got to talk <laughs> yes. about crypto before you leave. Ah, um, because it's my been, other pet peeve. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been kind of a, a bright spot this week, you know? Mm. Um, you know, here we are in the middle of a banking crisis, and right. you'd think the world was ending, but Bitcoin's up 11% on the week so far. Mm. The week's not even over yet, and... It's up 50% just this year, you know, right. and we're, we're not even three months into it yet. Right. Um, and we broke out to a nine-month high, you know, a little closer view of it here. Uh, you can see there's kind of a base, a little bit of an inverted head and shoulders when we, you know, failed to break, break down below that 19,000. Right. Or we got below there, and then we reclaimed it. Yep. And, you know, I really like those kind of false breakdown moves. They tend to lead to pretty sharp moves, uh, but I'm wondering, you know, what what your outlook is on Bitcoin. Do you think it's bottomed, and maybe what levels you're watching? If you did, so to make a point, I will say this to camera: <laughs> I am a noted crypto skeptic. <laughs> I believe that 99.9% of all crypto coins are going to zero. So having said that, yeah, right. So I mean, I think there's there's more, uh, you know, altcoins. Yeah. To not shit call coins. them shitcoins. Let's say, why already, I already uh, swore yeah. once, right? Yeah. Well, so there's more altcoins and there's more cryptocurrencies than there are stocks. Right. And there's a lot of stocks. There's a lot of junky stocks, right? Right, right. Uh, but that just blows my mind. I mean, how many, and they all have funny names and, and you know. Uh, but yeah, I'm sorry. I no, that's okay. So yeah. I think that the move that we've seen, particularly in Bitcoin and Ethereum this week, it feels like a very reactive move, obviously in reaction to the SIVB and the banking crisis, which to me, I don't understand, right? One of the reasons that people are going to get bailed out in this situation is because of government regulation. And so they think like, oh, I know, I'll go into the most non or no regulation area. Right. That, that makes more sense. I get it that it's an alternative to banking, but it, it doesn't it's, it seems like apples and oranges to me. So I think a lot of that is reactive, reflexive. And if you look at that chart, it's the February highs. We haven't many, as we sit here and record this now, Bitcoin and Ethereum have not been able to close and hold above those February highs. Yeah, and thank you for saying that because, you know, tomorrow, two, be, two yeah, hours from now. I don't now, want to look stupid, be, yeah, so right, I'm, right. Yeah, I got to quantify it too. The way this thing moves, two hours from now, it could be totally different. So I want to see it 
close above those February highs and base, like you said, like mm. contraction before expansion, that would tell me, if we just see this, this spike, that tells me it could be very fast money. But if we can see something where it holds in bases and then starts to move up, then I would be more interested. But I think it's also instructive to look at all the other coins. Like you look at Cardano, you look at Solana, you look at Helium, you look at whoever. They're way below those February yeah, highs. And a lot of them are not are far off of where this run started. So it's really only, uh, as far as I can tell, Ethereum and Bitcoin that are showing the strength. Yeah. But again, I feel like, I feel like Bitcoin and Ethereum and crypto protocols will have a utility in our lives going forward. But again, how we talked about a pot company can survive while the equity goes away or a bank can survive and the equity goes away. You can have the utility survive, right? Become commoditized. But the speculative aspect of crypto go away. And I think we saw, we've seen that in the last year. What do you think of, you know, it gets called digital gold sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of reacting to this banking crisis in a way that you would expect gold to. And now gold is, is also reacting positively. It's, it's got, got a bid this week. Uh, but, you know, do you think it's kind of acting like that safe haven? Because at the same time, it's been fairly correlated to equities and, and the rest of uh, risk assets, right? So Yeah, so I'm going to take off my trader hat here. And any asset only has value because we believe it has value. We know that, right? right. It doesn't matter whether it's the U.S. dollar, a share of Apple, whether it's gold. I find it ironic that in a week and a half where people, people's perception of the value and the safety of a whole sector went away and has now come back somewhat, thanks to the government, that people are going into a asset that is fully based upon people's, you know, how they feel and their belief, right? right? right. And so it seems like that's an industry that, he, or that's an asset that's even more uh, susceptible to a intellectual run. Mm -hmm. so for some reason, something happens with the protocol of Bitcoin. They find out that you can actually duplicate something. How fast would yeah. everybody leave that? And, and you have no government or no entity to come back in and go, whether it's good or bad, we're going to safeguard it. So mm -hmm. that's why I just, I find this run into to Bitcoin and crypto a little sketchy. And again, I, I feel like 99.9% of it's going to zero. So. <laughs> Well, Edit listen. that out if that, if that doesn't happen in, in 10 years from now or whatever. Listen, we're definitely going to be talking about this thing in 10 years. Okay. I don't know yeah. what context that'll be, but, you know, I remember when this thing first broke out. In fact, I think it was at that same conference that you mentioned with the pot stocks. That broke out? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Bitcoin was just breaking 5,000 because you remember Meltem? Yes. Had that awesome presentation where it had just broken 5,000 for the first time. I remember Meltem got up there and said, I have 100% of my net worth in Bitcoin. And the whole room yeah. of investment professionals just gasped and were like, is this girl okay? Yeah. And she had the last laugh. I mean, she retired early. Yeah. She's not even like, maybe she's in her mid-30s. but. And let me tell you this. So I was sitting at the bar, having a beer, watching Meltem do that. She was done and I thought, I thought this poor gal. She doesn't know what she, she came over and I Joke's said, on us. I, I Joke's told, on no, us. I said, to her, I said, I said, I said, I really liked your presentation. And I did my trader thing. Like, but you really got to be careful. You know, like you don't want to overcommit. And she was polite. Mansplaining She's, risk. Like, right. I know, like man, mansplaining with a drink. And she was very polite. She's like, okay. I said, okay, well, that's good to know. Oh, I have to go over here. Right? <laughs> and you're right. She did. Uh, but I, I want to make it clear that just because I'm, I'm negative on crypto doesn't mean that... Well, you say you're skeptical, and I think yeah, that's the right word. But it doesn't mean you can't trade. I traded uh, crypto. I've, I've 
been very clear about this in my Discord. I sold my crypto holdings uh, November 7th of 2021, which was pretty close to the top. I don't take any credit. It was probably a, a, a nice accident. But the thing that's always bothered me is people say, well, if, it's, if, it's, if you can chart it, you can trade it, right? If you're a trader. But I've never trusted the underlying mechanisms, these exchanges mm -hmm. that they've traded on. And, and knock on wood, you know, I've been right in the last year and we've seen the blow up in FTX and all these individual um, exchanges. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with Binance. So yeah. that's what I'm more worried about. I'm more worried about counterparty risk than I am being able to trade it on a chart. Listen, Brian, we got to wrap it up, but thank you so much yeah. for coming in today. We got to do this more often. Thanks for having me down. It's nice to have a, a full studio just an hour and a half south of my house. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, safe travels back yep. and have a great St. Patty's Day. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Let's go get some tacos. All right. <laughs> um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund Loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelundloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.